Uh, welcome to this episode of the Bet and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to a very, very special guest today, Duncan Weldon, who was previously Britain economics correspondent at The Economist. Uh, uh, Duncan has written a book called 200 Years of Modeling Through, which is uh, a, a book about British economic history. Uh, listeners of the podcast will know I'm a great fan of economic history. And, and uh, Duncan's book was one of the best works I've read, mostly because there's a dearth of... Um, of, of good economic history writing, and also because it was uh, it was it was unbiased and was really clear, even for people who didn't understand economics. So hi, Duncan, and thanks for coming. Thank you for having me on. That's a pleasure. Um, there was once an, an anecdote about Singapore, where, where I am, where a British <laughs> economist asks a Singaporean uh, civil servant, uh, how does Singapore do so well? And the civil servant replies, if you took out the rest of the UK apart from London and call it Malaysia, you'd be doing, you, you'd be doing roughly the same. And given that, can Britain's geographic inequality, which has been going on for almost centuries now, can it, be, can it ever be solved? Very good question. I think you're right. So, you know, I, I, I say in the, the introduction to the book that, you know, Britain is a, is a strange economy. It's, I think I describe it as um, sort of southern Europe, more like Portugal or Spain, but with Singapore in the bottom corner, sort of London and southeast England. I think that is fair if you look at productivity levels, you know, London and the southeast, like you say, very similar. So, uh, Singaporean GDP per head or um, you know, one of the richest places in Europe, um, whereas the rest of Britain, you know, it is more akin to, to, to Spain or Portugal economically. You know, it's certainly below the levels you see in France and Germany. And you're right, this is a very long running, a very long running issue in Britain. You know, London has been, London and the southeast of England has been the richest part of the island of Britain for at least six or seven centuries. Um, can you do anything about it? Well, you know, the directions have changed. So if you look from sort of the end of the Second World War until the late 1970s, there was a narrowing in these regional differentials. So the Midlands of England, the North of England, Scotland and Wales all grew relatively faster than London and the Southeast for three or four decades. And you saw some narrowing since 1980 or so, that gap has opened up again. Now, can you ever eliminate that gap? You know, history would suggest not, but can you can you narrow from where you are now? Almost certainly. I mean, Britain is a Britain is an unusually unequal country. You know, there are much wider differentials between regions in Britain than there are in in France or in Germany. You know, otherwise comparable economies. Uh, the current British government has a problem. Uh, has has a program. Sorry about uh, reducing it. About reducing um, geographic inequality. Uh, a previous podcast guest of mine, Tom Spencer, said that it, this sort of thing has been going on since the 60s. Why haven't these programs worked? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say longer in the 60s. So you go back to the 1930s and you had what were called sort of special areas, special assistance schemes for economically depressed areas. And then, yeah, throughout the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, you had a very active regional policy in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher. You had sort of... Um, special enterprise zones and all of this. In the 1990s and the 2000s, we had regional development agencies. Under George Osborne as chancellor in the 2010s, we had an attempt at economic rebalancing, and now the British government is trying what they're calling leveling up. So, you know, we're approaching a century of policies. I think partially the problem is, you know, as I've just listed, um, we've gone through an awful lot of different attempts to um, sort of narrow these regional economic differentials over the past century. What we haven't had is a consistent long-run approach. And, you know, ultimately, if you want to increase GDP per head in the north of England, in the Midlands, in Wales, in Scotland, if you want to increase productivity levels there, you know, a lot of that work's got to be done by the private sector rather than the government. You know, the government can help the private sector do that by providing a sort of consistent, stable, um, long-run um, policy approach, which you know, puts the right incentives approach, uh, right incentives in place. But the government's got this tendency to sort of chop and change its mind. You know, I just don't think there's been a consistent push for a very long time. You know, focused on trying to narrow these differentials and what the government is doing now with leveling up. I mean, it's unclear 
quite what leveling up really means beyond being a slogan. Um, I'm not sure to what extent it is an economic program at all and versus it being about trying to make some of these places in the North and the Midlands more attractive places to live. And, you know, that's all well and good, but, you know, sprucing up high streets, repainting sort of civic spaces and putting up more hanging baskets might make these, you know, might make these places more pleasant to live. And that's a good thing, but it's not an economic agenda about productivity, about investment. Okay, yeah, I think that's a fair answer. What is your book about to, to people who, who haven't heard about it? Why did you write it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, so I've worked as an economist and an economics journalist for all of my career, most of the time focused on Britain. But my great passion has always been history, really. Um, and the book was an attempt to sort of bring together my professional knowledge with my interests in history. And it's, you know, if the book's got one theme, it's that path dependency matters. You know, the road you took to get to somewhere matters almost as much as where you are. Um, that, you know, nobody ever starts with a blank piece of paper. Choices made before you get to that blank bit of paper sort of constrain your actions. And the, the point really was that to understand where the British economy was is, is in 2021, you need to understand the path it took to get there, going all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. So it's really sort of a, it, it's a book about path dependency. And I think it was sort of written with sort of two audiences in mind, really. It was written for people interested in um, economics and the economy who don't necessarily know a huge amount of economic history. And it was written for people interested in history and politics who don't know a huge amount of economics. And the idea was, you know, I, I try and write, I tried to write it assuming very little knowledge of economics and assuming very little knowledge of, sort of British political history. And you know, to explain as we went along, the idea was, you know, I, I could explain different economic concepts as they became relevant to the, to the narrative. Um, and yeah, so it, it's sort of, you know, I mean, almost a primer on British economic history, economic history and economics in general, I like to think. Let's start from the very beginning. Why did the Industrial Revolution happen in the UK? Why not the Netherlands? Even there is a strong comparator, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly. So if you, if you go to sort of, if you look at Europe on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, so in the, uh, the 18th century, the mid-18th century, so just before, 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 the, before industrialization, you know, the, the two rich, the two places you'd spot as rich would be sort of the Dutch Republic and across the North Sea, England. And these are both um, high levels of income per head. They are um, um, high levels of income per head. They're very commercialized societies, even if they're not industrial. You know, they've both got quite high levels of urbanization, reasonably high levels of literacy. Um, but it's Britain rather than the Dutch Republic, which, you know, forges ahead with the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, you know, um, why is that? Well, you know, the, the answer, the answer according to many economic historians would be that Britain had this fairly unusual set of economic endowments in that it had access to very cheap energy, um, lots of easily available coal seams in Britain. Um, and it had like the Dutch Republic also, very low interest rates, very low borrowing costs, very low cost of capital. Plus, it had unusually high wages relative to the rest of Northern Europe. And if you were sort of, you know, a firm or an entrepreneur in Britain and you faced this set of costs, you know, labor is reasonably expensive, but energy and capital is very cheap, then your incentives are wherever possible to substitute capital and energy for labor. Um, and people did that. So you saw sort of more mechanization, more industrialization, and then it becomes self-fulfilling, just this unusual set of endowments. I mean, you know, there's more to it than that. I mean, the sort of geography plays a factor. You know, Britain being an island mattered, Britain being an island mattered in several ways. This is still a time when moving goods via water 
was much cheaper than moving them over land. So, you know, being an island, you could, you know, put stuff, you know, coal, you could put coal um, on a boat in Newcastle, um, up in the north of England, where I'm originally from, and move it via sea down to London very cheaply. Um, whereas in a country like France, um, which, you know, much um, comparatively smaller coastline, much more settlements away from the coast, moving coal around the country before um, steam locomotives would have been much more expensive. So I think the geography plays a factor, the unusually high wages play a factor, and the fact you had, you know, uh, relatively by this point um, stable and relative to the rest of Europe, relatively sort of open, smaller, liberal form of government, um, all, all I think played a role in why it was Britain first. I mean, you know, to an extent, it's an historical accident that it was Britain first, but it's an historical accident which was very important for the following 100 years. Uh, that happened. Um, after the Industrial Revolution, you know, uh, Marx and Engels made the, made, the, made the claim that the conditions for the working class didn't actually improve. They were worse off than the Malthusian age. How true is that? And, and, and how did the Industrial Revolution impact different uh, classes in Britain uh, in different ways? Yeah, so at the time, you know, so I mean, the, 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 the story I always quite like about Engels is, you know, Friedrich Engels, you know, he's, he's in Germany. He's part of it. He's born to a very rich family of, um, sort of German industrialists. And they're worried that he's become very radical in his politics. And to sort of try and, you know, sort of embed him in the family business, they send him to look after the family's operations in Manchester, sort of thriving heart of the Industrial Revolution in Britain up in the north. I mean, you know, if, if you... <laughs> I mean, it, you know, if the idea was to sort of, you know, knock his youthful radicalism out of him, um, sending him to live in Manchester, it's sort of the beating heart of modern industrial capitalism at the time, really didn't work. Uh, really, really didn't work. But, you know, I think the thing that, you know, at the time Marx and Engels are writing the Communist Manifesto, at the time Engels is writing the condition of the working class in the 1840s, Britain is sort of three or four decades into what we'd recognize as industrial growth. Seeing the sort of explosive urbanization and growth of cities, the rise of um, factory employment. And cities at this point are still sort of mortality sinks. You know, the, with the state of modern medicine, if you cram lots of medicine at the time, you cram lots of people together in these cities, what you get is lots of disease. Um, you put the numbers together, time, 100 and the mid 1840s, you see quite substantial growth in GDP per head, but very weak growth in real wages. So at the time Marx and Engels are writing, the world they're observing is one of one in which industrialization has meant rising productivity, but rising profits. It hasn't fed through to the workforce. And yes, the workforce are now, in many cases, living in these quite squalid cities with high mortality rates. You know, that's sort of the backdrop to them writing the Communist Manifesto. And it's one of those great historical ironies that it's not long after the manifesto is published in the mid-1840s that the relationship changes. For the next five decades, you see quite strong growth in real wages. It takes a long time for the, industri the benefits of the Industrial Revolution to filter down to the urban workforce. But when they do, they filter down in a very substantial way. Why did that happen? Because um, if you if you look at current uh, the current tech boom or the finance boom of the previous years, uh, tech workers and, and and finance workers are the ones who are making the most amount of money, right? But on the on the on the other hand, uh, that didn't happen in the textile mills and and the and the and the coal mines. What were the reasons for the late takeoff of of of, of labor shares of labor's share of income in the nineteenth uh, century? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways you can think through what was happening. So one, one argument would be that the Industrial Revolution was becoming increasingly capital intensive. And so firms had to run, you know, in aggregate, um, capital had to run with quite high profit margins to build up, you know, the accumulated savings that were then reinvested in plant and machinery driving further waves of industrialization. And eventually you got to a point um, when that was no longer needed and the overall profit share could fall and more of the benefits could go to the workforce. Another framework for thinking through it would be to think in sort of um, 
sort of the Arthur Lewis development economics frame to say that, you know, what sort of your early industrialists faced was a large, relatively, you know, a relatively large, relatively poorer rural workforce. And as long as there was a rural workforce who could be enticed into the industrial sector with marginally higher wages, you had that sort of, you know, army of urban, uh, rural labor you could bring into the cities, you didn't need to pay very much. And it wasn't until that sort of rural migration had been tapped out, cities had got as big as they were going to get, that if you then wanted to compete for workers, you had to start paying more. It just took a long time to sort of, you know, get rid of that reserve army of um, rural workers to start pushing up wages. I think there's also, you know, another argument in the book is, particularly over the longer run, you can only really understand economic developments if you put them in a political economy framework. Um, so certainly over decades, but, you know, the 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 working class became um, more important uh, in terms of, sort of political outcomes. Their voice they had to be essentially bought off, and it's in the second half of the nineteenth century that you start to see wages rising. Obviously continues into the 20th century when the urban workforce get much more of an active voice in in politics for the first time. How is Britain integrated with the global economy on this? You talk, you talk a lot about globalization. One of the things I found which I didn't like about the book was that you didn't talk about colonialism. How did that uh, uh, interact with the British uh, economy along with the standard aspects of uh, globalization? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's fair to say, you know, um, you know, if we think of sort of the late 19th century as, you know, this sort of great age of globalization, and you've got goods moving across borders at a rate that's then not matched until the 1980s, you've got capital moving across borders at a rate which isn't matched until the 1980s, lots of migration, um, you know, very, in many ways, very globalized economy from the 1870s until the First World War. And Britain sits at the center of that um, global economy, big manufacturing power, huge merchant marine, huge financial services, all of this. But yes, it's fair to say that globalization and imperialism proceed hand in hand in the late 19th century. Um, and Britain obviously builds a very large empire in the um, 19th century. It's not new, you know, Britain. Britain was an imperial power before it industrialized. It's just on a much larger scale in the 19th century. And, you know, it makes perfect sense to an extent that, you know, you've suddenly got these countries in Europe, which are suddenly have, after the insert commas, after insert, um, you know, what people call the um, great divergence, you've suddenly got much higher income per head levels in Europe, and much better military technology. And they use that to stamp their authority all over bits of Asia and most of Africa. Um, what economic impact did this have on Britain, I think is, is debatable. Um, you know, so you can take a range of estimates on how much the empire added or subtract uh, added to Britain's economy, and they rarely come up at more than, um, you know, seven or eight percent of GDP. Um, you know, Britain shorn of its empire, Edwardian Britain shorn of its empire would still have been a very rich, very large um, economy. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I I I I I think the I think, interestingly, sort of the imperial contribution to Britain's economy becomes more important in the 20th century than the 19th, even though we tend to think of the 20th century as sort of, you know, almost a post-imperial age in some ways. Uh, after that, what happened in the in the 18th, after the, the the wage boom in the 1860s, 70s, there was concern that other countries were catching up to it, you know, <laughs> Germany after the mm. after Bismarck was united catching up America after the Civil War had its uh, Gilded Age and, and, and even even despite the high in, uh, inequality was becoming one of the super mm. powers of the age. Uh, how how anxious was the British uh, elite and public about this? What did they do uh, to solve this? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating period. So I, I call my chapter on sort of late Victorian Britain the successful failure. So I think that's sort of the dynamic, which I understand 
for Victorian Britons. You know, on one level, it's clearly a successful country. It's, the, it's at the center of the global economy. It's the world's biggest manufacturing power, center of global finance, biggest merchant marine, huge export market shares, all of this. Um, very wealthy country, one of the highest income per heads in the world. And yet, if you go back and read the act of debate among sort of Victorian politicians, Victorian economic observers, they're obsessed with failure. They're obsessed with this fact that Germany and America are either catching up or indeed moving ahead of them in some ways. Um, now, to an extent, I, I, I think, you know, Britain was the first country to industrialize. By the mid-19th century, it was the richest country in the world. But unless you think there is something special about the British people or about the geography of Britain, that was never going to be the case forever. There was always going to be, you know, the, the industrial processes which had been used in Britain were always going to spread overseas eventually. And there was, you know, Britain was bound to have a relative economic decline. You know, in absolute terms, the Victorian economy was performing fine, but in relative terms, that lead was slipping away. And that sort of obsesses Victorian statespeople. You know, I mean, some of the failures of um, Victorian Britain, you know, you, you, you can account for them in things like education. So Britain was very, very late to adopt universal free primary schooling and um, secondary schooling. And if you look at some of the you know, what some people call the second industrial revolution in the late 19th, very early 20th century, things like chemical engineering, electrical engineering, all of that, that required higher levels of human capital, higher levels of education, which the first industrial revolution had not, and which Britain's workforce was less equipped to deal with. In the end, you saw a substantial proportion, although not a majority, of the British elite um, and British manufacturing um, types start to see the appeals of protectionism by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, which was quite a decisive break in Britain. You know, Britain in the 1840s had adopted unilateral free trade, um, but unilateral free trade when you were the only manufacturing power of any size was in some ways quite easy. Um, universal free trade in an era when, you know, the Germans and the Americans and to an extent the French we're now outcompeting you in certain sectors started to be less obvious um, to some of the British elite. Over the time, one one interesting financial aspect of all of this is that Britain uh, had a had a relatively high debt to GDP. You mention in the in the book that the that the concept of GDP didn't exist, but you yeah. know even by modern standards, uh, it was when debt levels are high, it was especially high then. Now, was this uh, was this just an exception that Britain? couldn't have uh, Britain by somehow, uh, by some stroke of luck made it through this time without having a major debt crisis? Or was it that we've somehow underestimated uh, the sustainable level of debt for an economy? Or was it some other factor that, that people expected the economy to grow and the government had relatively low taxes, so they, uh, you know, prized in future tax increases to pay the debt? What explained the low interest, the relatively low interest rates and high levels of debt? Yeah, so I think Britain, I mean, you know, um, like today, you know, if you're, if you're investing in sovereign bonds today is to an extent like picking the least dirty shirt out of the laundry basket. Um, you know, the shirt you're picking out might be dirty, but what matters is it's less dirty than the other shirts that are in the laundry basket. Um, and you know, the fact that your shirt is relatively less dirty than someone else's makes it more attractive, you attract lower interest rate. Now, Britain, Britain in the 19th century and indeed Britain in the late 18th century had very, very low borrowing costs. Um, number of reasons for that, partially because Britain has developed a relatively sophisticated financial system from the 1600s onwards, with um, sort of all the apparatus that goes around that, um, banks, etc. Um, partially because the British government had established over a very long time that it was creditworthy, that it would not, you know, like the Spanish government or the French government um, default, it was seen as dependable. Um, and it was those low borrowing costs which allowed Britain to take on levels of debt you know, well in excess of many of its peers and still attract very low interest rates. Um, you know, it's partially the stability of 
the British political system at this time as well. The fact that Parliament is increasingly in charge rather than the monarch, and Parliament is much more closely tied to sort of merchant and commercial and financial interests than just the monarch would have been. And, you know, it, given these guys are in, you know, if you're someone considering lending to Britain, what you can see is that the people who are really in charge are in many ways quite like you and will keep your interests close to heart and will understand that the national debt is something that's got to be serviced and eventually um, paid back. So I think that all explains why Britain had very low interest rates. And I think what really matters, you know, I, I still think this, I think what really matters is not sort of the debt to GDP ratio, it's how expensive the interest costs are. And you can have a very, very high, you know, today in 2021, debt to GDP in Britain is about 100%. Um, roughly the highest it's been since the early 1960s. But interest costs as a percentage of GDP are the lowest they've been in a century. And so you know, if you look at Britain today, I think it makes very little sense to say, you know, the debt burden is the highest since the early 1960s because the debt is costing us considerably less than it was 15 years ago. I think, you know, that's, that's the metric that really matters. Of course, it can change and you've got to watch it. But I think, you know, Britain, Britain could... Britain could pay off, or Britain could, you know, your debt to GDP was over 200% at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, um, at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, it wasn't a crimp on growth, it didn't stop the Industrial Revolution from happening. What mattered was that debt was, the servicing costs of that debt were very, very low. The nearest Britain, I think, sort of in the time frame covered by the book, has come to fiscal crisis would be in the 1920s after the First World War, when British debt to GDP leapt and it was attracting quite high interest rates. And, you know, an awful lot of the government's um, revenue was being swallowed up with um, debt repayment costs. I mean, you know, the British government sort of lurches from crisis to crisis in the 1920s and the 1930s under that debt burden. Mentioned one thing which that was very interesting that the British financial sector had developed since the 1600s. Now, Britain was a pre-industrial economy in the 1600s. What did they finance then? Oh, mainly, mainly, mainly the government. Mainly the government. So, you know, the, the Bank of England is founded in um, 1690, I think, or 1691, about 1690. And you know, the Bank of England now always talks about its core purposes being. Um, monetary stability and financial stability, but the original founding principle of the Bank of England was to help fund the war with France. Just thankfully, the need for that has fallen by the wayside over the last few centuries. Um, but yeah, um, you know, we, we established, I mean, the second central bank established in the world, um, and it's, you know, it, it's about funding government activity. Um, so that, that small aside apart, Let's move a little forward into, into, uh, into this. In the early 20th century, uh, what was the state of the British economy? Were they prepared for the Great War, as it was then called? Um, it's an interesting question. So, um, you know, when Britain goes to war in 1914, um, you know, the type of war Britain was going to fight at least in the eyes of its um, political leaders, was not the war it ended up actually fighting. You know, therefore, Britain would fight a war which involved a relatively small commitment of land forces to the continent. And it would be a war, very like the Napoleonic Wars, in which Britain's contribution to its allies would be to lend its naval strength in enforcing a blockade on Germany and the Central Powers, and to provide money and um, munitions um, for the armies of France and Russia. And, you know, Britain found itself in a very different type of war, having to put a much larger army than it put in the field before, directly on in, 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 into, um, into, onto the continent. And the war Britain expected to fight was different from the war it ended up fighting. The war it ended up fighting ended up being a total war, had to put many more soldiers into the field than originally intended. It involved um, conscription. It eventually involved the government taking on a much larger economic footprint than it ever had before. And it wasn't to the extent it did in the Second World War, but, you know, there's much more government direction of industry, um, much more government purchasing in the economy, a much larger state. Now, in the end, 
the economic structure of Britain helped it win that war. If you compare Britain to Germany at the time, um, you know, Britain had much higher GDP per head than Germany. They had similar sized manufacturing sectors, but Britain had a much larger service sector. Germany had a much larger agricultural um, sector. And this is the interesting thing that, you know, there's often this assumption that in a war, particularly in a total war, you want to be self-sufficient in things like um, food production. The lesson of the First World War for Britain was that was not the case. Um, Britain relied on food imports. It had been a big food importer since the 1840s. And in the end, you know, not being, you know, being reliant on the rest of the world to feed Britain meant that fewer Britons had to work in the fields and in agriculture. More could be put either directly into uniform or moved into making munitions and ammunition and weapons relative to Germany, where an awful lot of the labor force was tied up in agricultural work trying to feed itself. And as long as the Royal Navy could hold open the sea lanes and you know, meat could continue to come from Australasia and from Latin America, um, et cetera, then this turned out to be an advantage. You know, Britain fought a very globalized war in the First World War in the same way as it did in the second and turned this to its advantage. And then the interwar years really, really sucked for Britain, for <laughs> lack of a better word, right? Yeah. If, you, if you look at major economies, I mean, it wasn't much better for them, but at least Britain didn't have the loathing 20s, it had had a fairly stagnant 30s when the invasion of Poland did things really pick up in, in 1939. Why did that happen? And what was the main cause of, of the great stag, of the previous, of the old great stagnation? Yeah, so I think, you know, Britain had a very miserable 1920s, right? a really, really miserable 1920s, economically speaking. Um, and I think lots of this goes back to the First World War. So the First World War affects the British economy in a number of ways. So firstly, you've got this much higher government debt burden than it had in the decades before that war. And this debt is of a very different kind. Britain traditionally, you know, sort of Victorian Britain, you know, would fund most of its debt in very, very long-term ways, you know, the, generally through consuls, which are perpetual debt instruments which last forever. The First World War was funded with um, war loans and bonds, generally of a 10-year maturity, which had to be refinanced in the 1920s um, and at much higher interest rates. So much of the borrowing in the First World War was done at like 5% or more compared to under 3% in the um, debt on sort of the old Victorian Issuance, you've got much higher interest burden. And this is really weighing on the economy, weighing on government spending. Um, British industry has really been twisted out of shape by the First World War. You know, industry has been twisted towards sort of heavy good, heavy manufacturing and um, sort of war-related production, which there's then not an immediate demand for in the 1920s. And lots of export markets have been lost over the course of the war when, you know, Brit British textiles production, whatever, has been closed down and other countries have stepped in um, meeting the demand where British manufacturers used to. And in the 1920s, you've got this, this ongoing sort of deglobalization, that sort of high age of globalization before the First World War is over. The world is becoming more national rather than more global. And Britain, which had been this extraordinarily globalized economy, naturally suffers from that. So you've got all of these sort of problems resulting from the First World War. And fundamentally, Britain's political economy is changed by the war. You know, the state grows hugely during the war. It never shrinks back to its sort of Edwardian or Victorian size. The government has made promises to, you know, the generation that fought the First World War about, you know, a land fit for heroes, all of this, taken on new social obligations. Um, Britain has become a truly mass democracy um, with all men and all women over 30 given the vote in 1918, and that equalized to all men and all women in um, 1928. And yet some of the elite haven't really accepted this. They're trying to move back to that sort of pre-First World War small state, and this sets up really vicious political fighting, which doesn't help, very, very fractious 
um, labor relations and industrial relations in the 1920s. You get the general strike. And finally, sort of related to that, Britain has just like terribly inappropriate monetary policies. You know, Britain decides to go back on the gold standard. It goes back on the gold standard at the pre-war rate. So you're left with this really, really overvalued sterling, which is further crimping sort of export performance in what used to be called the staple industries, things like shipbuilding, steelwork, coal, um, you know, th this really hugely overvalued pound is just another drag. And, you know, defending the value of sterling means keeping interest rates much higher than they would have been, which crimps public, uh, private sector investment. So it's really just a sort of a disastrously uh, mix of policy and circumstances means Britain has this very grim 1920s and then a not much better 1930s. But it is important that the chronology in Britain is different to the US. You know, the US, you talk about roaring 20s and then depression in the 1930s, whereas in Britain, you get this ultra miserable 1920s, quite a bad early 1930s, and then from the mid 30s onwards, an economic recovery. Okay. Now, I have a few questions for you outside of, outside of the general thing of the book. Who is the most underrated British prime minister very on good economic question. policy? Yeah, on economic policy, it's very good. Um, yeah, so I think um, people who don't get enough attention, you know, when people talk about economic impact of prime ministers, they tend to go to either Margaret Thatcher, um, to Clement Attlee after the Second World War, uh, to Robert Peel, all the way back in the 1840s, establishing free trade. But I think actually sort of underrated in terms of economic importance would be Lloyd George, who was Chancellor before the First World War and then Prime Minister afterwards. And, you know, it's, it's Lloyd George, really, who, you know, is the Prime Minister that, and Chancellor, who is sort of the, the, the Chancellor and Prime Minister at a time of transition of Britain moving from being a very Victorian economy and political economy to being a more 20th century one. So it's a, you start to see more progressive taxation, more higher taxes on the, um, the better off to fund a bit more redistribution. You see the very nascent beginnings of the welfare state with the institution of national insurance, um, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, all sort of associated with um, Lloyd George. And he's a, the long run impact of Lloyd George is very, very important. Lots of things that British people take for granted in the 20th century, um, um, you know, really start under Lloyd George. I think his, his, his importance is really um, underestimated. Um, what's the... People criticise uh, British economic policy over the last 20 years a lot. What has British economic policy gotten right over since 2000? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there, there's an awful lot. We could run through the reasons you could criticise British economic policy over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But, you know, fundamentally, Britain is still a very successful economy. Um, you know, I mean, GDP per head is still high. The employment rate is um, very high, compares very favourably to much of the rest of Europe or the United States. Um, you know, Britain, I mean... Britain, Britain is not. Um, Britain's also got some strength. I'm stepping back for a second, you know, you look at the public debate in Britain. Britain is a country which is not very comfortable with its comparative advantages. Um, you know, Britain's comparative advantages. If you're sort of sort of stepping back, sort of thousand mile view, looking at Britain, you'd say very successful financial services sector, very successful um, service sector in general, very very successful university sector. Um, and yet the current government doesn't appear to, to, to especially like any of these things, nor does, <laughs> nor, nor does the opposition like uh, many of them. You know, I, I remember chatting to a, an asset manager for a piece in The Economist earlier this year, who was talking about the Brexit deal Britain struck, which was not particularly attractive for um, financial services. And he said, you, know, you, can't, you can't imagine any German government doing this to the car industry. Uh, which you know, is fair. But, you know, Britain does have an incredibly successful services sector. Um, you know, we're one of the largest exporters of services per capita of any advanced economy. We have a very, very successful 
um, education sector, which we should really think of as an export sector, just that, you know, the people come here to get their exports. Um, we've done these things um, very, very well. Uh, and we don't, you know, th th there's often this, you know, the tone of sort of economic policy debate in Britain is often sort of, you know, lamenting that we don't have a strong enough manufacturing sector or whatever, rather than celebrating a very successful service sector as an exporter and a very successful um, university sector as an exporter. And, you know, there are bits of British manufacturing which are also still very successful that we just tend not to talk about as much. I mean, you know, Britain is, Britain is one of the largest car producers in the European Union, um, of in, not in the European Union, one of the largest car producers in Europe, I should say. Um, it just so happens that most of that, that, that the vast majority, almost all of the volume car manufacturers are foreign owned, but they, they operate in, they operate in Britain. Um, if you look at ambitious people today, they might want to go to finance, might want to go to tech, they might, some of them who are more literally minded might want to go to journalism. How did the um, ambitions of the ambitious change over these centuries? That's a very good question. So, yeah, I mean, um, so, I mean, it depends where you start out, I suppose. But yes, so, you know, the, the, the road to riches in the 19th century in Britain was certainly in you know, manufacturing and um and railroads and you know all of these sort of you know new technologies of the time. Um, by the twentieth century, uh, um, you know, things start to change. You get you get a point sort of post Second World War, I think, when you know there's seen as the virtue in going to work in the civil service. When if you look at you know sort of output of graduates from the you know inverted commas elite universities, a huge proportion of them wanted to go and be. Um, civil servants, very, very different um, ethos at that time. And yeah, it's it's really since sort of the 1980s that we've seen this big draw into the financial sector, when suddenly the rewards to working in the financial sector sort of decoupled for a while from the rest of the British economy. That, you know, if you were a successful graduate who went to work in finance, you would earn a multiple of what you'd work, you would earn working in um you know, manufacturing or the civil service. Now you're right. I mean, things have started to change again. I think since 2008, 2009, there has been a big draw into tech. Although it must be said, Britain has not been hugely successful in creating um, domestic tech firms. You know, the big tech firms in London still tend to be the big American tech firms. Why, why is that so? You have an English, you, you have the English speaking uh, economy, a uh, reasonably well-educated workforce. You used to have access to the European Union, but now with the internet, it's, 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 it's you know, it, 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 the trade deals don't matter as much as they do in the physical economy. Uh, why hasn't Britain created as many large tech firms as the US? In fact, I think within the, the, the top 20 large tech firms, I can't recall of the top of my head, uh, even one being British born and, and not created. The only one I can think of is my last three pie over here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think partially, this is a story about sort of the, the ecology of corporate Britain that corporate Britain is quite good at creating startups. It's quite good at growing them into medium-sized companies. It's very bad at that next step between medium-sized companies and very large companies. And you know what, what has tended to happen in Britain, you know, when you've had successful British programmers or programmers based in Britain, um, often came to London from somewhere else, who have developed sort of successful tech, they've often sold them, they've often allowed their company to be acquired by usually a big American firm um, at quite an early stage. You know, it's very different. It's that, that sort of stage between having a very successful product and scaling that up to being a very big firm seems to have happened very rarely. You know, it's interesting if you, and, and, this, and this is not by accident, this is by design, this is you know, a feature rather than a bug. If you, if you go to you know, what people call Silicon Roundabout, you know, Britain's rather far less grand um, than Silicon Valley, sort of a, a collection of offices around Old Street, just north of the city of London, um, where you will find lots of sort of WeWork offices filled with tech firms um, or with a bit of venture capital funding. Um, if you go and talk to these guys, and they're mainly guys, 
um, what you will what you will find is, you know, the, the exit strategy is to be bought by Google or Facebook. You know, they're, they're, they're not trying to build a Google or a Facebook. They're trying to build a product or an application or an app or a bit of tech, which one of the big American firms will want and then sell themselves from multiple um, to that American firm. There is very little desire, it seems, to build a larger tech firm. I, is the binding constraint ambition then? Do we just need more screenings of the, of the social network in Oxford? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, it, is, it is partially a scale thing as well, though. That, you know, Britain is a large country, but, you know, um, you know it, it, it's, it's not the United States and it's not China. Um, and yes, Britain was until quite recently part of the European single market, but the European single market in sort of media and tech firms was never completed. It was still you know, mostly national in those ways. I think it was always going to be hard to build a Facebook or a Google in a market the size of Britain rather than in a United States or potentially a, or a China or a Japan or whatever. So, yeah, you know, so it's partially that ambitions are limited. Um, by the size of the market. And it's partially just that, you know, they're going back to that point about path dependency, um, that, you know, the past matters. The fact that we live in a world in which Google and Facebook exist and in which Google and Facebook and Apple are prepared to write very, very large checks to buy smaller companies. If you've set up a smaller company and, you know, Apple come across with their, you know, very, very large offer, um, it's very, very tempting to say yes. And in a world in which these firms already exist, then you know, planning your business around how do we build our business to such a scale that an American tech giant will write us a very large check um, makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, there's a proposal by John Coughlin of the Hoover Institution that the US should issue perpetual bonds the UK funded its debt in the Napoleonic Wars, some consoles, same as perpetual bonds. Should they do? Should they increase the terms to, uh, length of the debt uh, by by issuing more consoles to reduce the the chances of a funding crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you look like of historical big picture, Victorian Britain is an enormously successful manager of public debt. You know, here's a country which has debt to GDP of over 200 percent. You know, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and this isn't debt, you know, that's been incurred investing in infrastructure or improving human capital or any of these good things you might do with public debt. This is public debt which has been incurred almost entirely in fighting two decades of wars against France and wars, and you know, a century of war before that. This is you know, as unproductive a debt as you can find, and yet. Victorian Britain experiences the Industrial Revolution. Um, it manages that debt incredibly well, as we were speaking about. Part of that is a term structure thing and a low interest rates thing. And yeah, um, I, you know, I, I, you know, we've we've seen the maturity of debt lengthen over the last few years. There's a few century bonds knocking around now. Um, I'm surprised that more more of the advanced economies, uh, more of the G7, etc., haven't looked at you know, how long, how long can we issue this stuff for? Is it 50 years? Is it a century bond? Is it even a perpetual? I mean, I, I, I'd have thought the appetite was out there to buy that sort of debt now. And yes, and if you can lock in low interest rates for the next few generations, that would obviously be helpful enormously, given where debt to GDP ratios are at the moment. What did you change your mind about while researching this book? There must have been some preconception you had that turned out to be false. Oh, yeah. I mean, several. I mean, um, I think the big one for me really was on sort of the debate about 1950s, 1960s, 1970s um, Britain. Now, you know, this is a time um, of, you know, Britain's relative economic decline relative to the rest of Western Europe. It's a time that you know, GDP per capita in West Germany and France surpasses Britain. It's usually seen as a as a sort of fairly dreadful few decades for the British economy. And, you know, at the end of it, at the end of my research, I was left feeling a bit more upbeat about 1950s, 1960s, 1970s Britain, in that, yes, there is a relative decline relative to Western Europe, but there is very little decline 
relative to the United States, which was still sort of the economic leader at that point. And in absolute terms, the um, you know GDP performance during those decades was actually quite strong. So in fact, strongest in um, British economic history. So sort of left feeling a bit more optimistic than I had about the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And like, you know, I mean, even the 1970s is interesting. So you know, the 1970s in sort of popular British imagination is this devil's decade um, that, you know, you never want, you know, nobody wants to go back to the 1970s, but actually, you know, unemployment was considerably lower than it was in the 1980s or the 1990s. Real wage growth was in general stronger, even though inflation was very, very high. And the GDP performance was not disastrous. You know, the 1970s wasn't a great decade for the British economy, but it wasn't quite as disastrous as you might sort of think going into it. My last question to you is, um, you've been writing your Substack for a few months now. You've, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's been recently started. Uh, what has that taught you about publishing online? How did the, the, the economics of it, the distribution of it change when you're working for yourself and don't have an audience guaranteed to you? Yeah, I mean, it makes you, yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. So I, I love the freedom of it. I love uh, being able to set my own sort of um, pace of doing it um, rather than sort of being constrained into writing for a weekly newspaper. So I can be far more responsive. I love being able to vary my length a lot more so I can decide how much, how much I want to say about any particular topic. And, you know, I can vary up when I post, all of that sort of stuff. So I, li- I like the flexibility um, and I like the... I like having my own voice again, rather than having the collective voice of the Economist, the newspaper. Um, so that that's all that's all the upside. But yeah, you learn a lot. I mean, you you learn a lot in that. You know, I now have, I have to think about my customers and what my customers and clients um, want. I have to take the feedback um, very very seriously. Um, it's a very different skill set. I mean, it feels quite entrepreneurial and quite exciting some of the time. Um, and I, I'm very much enjoying it. But, you know, it's it, yeah, the sort of the two internal metrics I'm looking at constantly are how big is the, how big is the list of people getting the Substack for free and what percentage of those are paying. And it's about both. You know, I mean, growing it as a business involves both growing the free list and over time, um, increasing the sort of paid subscriber um, ratio, um, and it's early days yet, but it's, I'm, I, I've been very pleased by how it's all how it's all gone so far. Uh, exciting and entrepreneurial are not the words you, you'd associate with an economist, but such is the 21st century. So yeah. Uh, Thanks a lot for coming. I think this is the first uh, serious e- uh, economic history episode I've had. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no, actually it's not. It's I, uh, apologies to my previous guests, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, no. Uh, thanks for coming. I've learned a lot, and I think this episode is going to do very, very well. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. <laughs>